The secret unit of the U.S. Postal Service has used facial recognition software developed by a company known as Clearview AI to tap into a database of over 3 billion images from across social media to identify potential suspects in law enforcement investigations. That's just one of the latest stunning revelations by Yahoo News contributor Jana Winter in her reporting on the Postal Service's Internet Covert Operations Program a program whose existence was until recently unknown to the public or even Congress, and whose activities raised profound civil liberties issues for the Internet age. Postal inspectors have also been using software to run keyword searches on social media event pages to identify potential threats from upcoming protests and to create fake email and social media accounts to interact with citizens who might be participating in those protests. What exactly is this program's purpose, and who, if anybody, is monitoring what these covert postal inspectors are actually doing? We'll talk to Winter about our reporting, and then we'll talk to Brad Stone about his new book about Jeff Bezos, the head of a company, Amazon, whose activities also raise privacy and civil liberties concerns on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So, you know, what really strikes me about this, uh, you know, fascinating reporting by uh, Jana Winter about this uh, covert postal service program is how selective we all get about civil liberties issues. I mean, we all remember not too long ago when Edward Snowden uh, released his documents, which uh, showed that the uh, NSA had a database of everybody's home phone numbers and cell phone numbers. And that raised all sorts of outrage across the political spectrum, but mostly from people on the left um, about the idea that the government would be collecting all this information about all of us. And here we have, you know, new reporting that shows a whole other arm of the government, the Postal Service, has been doing some pretty far-reaching collection on its own about the activities of American citizens. And you've got we've gotten some you know, demands for investigations and more information, mostly from Republicans. But Democrats have been largely silent on this matter. Why? Yeah. yeah. The, look, this is always the case, it seems to me, or at least in, in, in recent times. Um, we reported a whole lot after 9-11 about civil liberties violations, uh, whether it was Guantanamo or you know, material witness warrants, or then, of course, uh, the warrantless wiretapping program, um, you know, that got the media and liberals all exercised. Um, I don't remember the Bush administration being particularly exercised about those issues at, at the time. <laughs> they were doing it. What are <laughs> yeah, you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> they authorized yeah, it right. all in secret, too. I mean, you yeah. know. Uh, but, um, you know, the uh, pendulum uh, always kind of swings back and forth on these issues. The the thing that's, that's bizarre about this is that if you look at what John's reporting shows is that 
this program, this covert program started with uh, the Postal Inspection Service, you know, surveilling people's social media in connection with the racial justice protests and, and you know, Black Lives Matters. Well, did it uh, after- start there? I thought it started. We don't know no, exactly when it started. Well, we'll talk to Jana about that, but- it may be that they had some program that existed before where they were looking at, you know, child pornography or whatever else. But it certainly sounds like it got accelerated at that point, partly because, according to her reporting, uh, there were threats against uh, the, uh, the the postmaster general. Um, so this seems like the kind of thing that ought to spur uh, bipartisanship since, um, you know, both Black Lives Matters and, and, and other protesters, you know, legitimately exercising their First Amendment and free speech rights were, were, were protesting what was going on then. And um, in the wake of the January 6th assault on, on the Congress, people who may have been swept up in investigations of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. So it, it, it seems like both sides ought to come together. Uh, to investigate potential abuses of civil liberties here. Uh, but that's, I guess, not the age that we live in. Well, we, we don't know yet, but it's it, but the stuttering response that's uh, that's coming on this is a perfect example of how the specific and the general clash, the, the general squeamishness that Democrats or Republicans have about the civil liberties issues always kind of screeches to a halt when all of a sudden a specific incident comes into mind. So we want to catch the guys who did January 6th. And if that involves widespread use of facial recognition technology, then all of a sudden everyone gets really quiet about the civil liberties and long-term implications of what the Postal Service might might be doing. We don't know where this is going to go. I mean, it's, it's still an evolving story and there's a lot more reporting to come from it. But for now, everyone is sort of stuttering as they try to figure out how, yeah. to, ba- how to balance. I think you're exactly right. Um, but I also think that... Um, you know, we ought to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> yeah. um, we ought to be able to catch white supremacists and protect civil liberties at the yeah, same time. And it, it's exactly. white, white supremacists who assault the U.S. Capitol, that is to say. <laughs> well, speaking of which, we have what's going on now with the January 6th commission, uh, which after uh, the House seemed to have reached an agreement with uh, the designated Republican by uh, Kevin McCarthy to negotiate it. McCarthy has walked away from supporting the legislation for a January 6th commission. Now we just learned as we tape this that Mitch McConnell is against it in the Senate, raising some really- filibuster. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. well, so where do we go from here? Can this- um, commission actually get off the ground if the Republican leader in the Senate is opposed to it? Are there 10 Republicans who will break a filibuster of this? Uh, and even if we get one, you know, the compromise was there would be an equal number of Democratic and Republican members of the commission. If the Republican leadership, who presumably will appoint those Republican members, are opposed to the very idea of it, what kind of Republican members are we going to get on a commission who would have veto power over who gets subpoenaed and who doesn't? By the way, you don't need to think too long and hard about a perfect example of this happening. About a year ago, when Congress passed the CARES Act providing corona relief, they created a congressional oversight commission to look into waste, fraud and abuse surrounding the expenditures. And 
Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell still haven't been able to agree on who the chair of the commission should be. So it's not a hard stretch to imagine that were this commission to pass over a filibuster, which is highly unlikely, that then neither McConnell nor McCarthy would ever appoint the Republican commissioners to actually proceed with this January 6th investigation. It seems at this stage of the game like a dead letter. It's just it doesn't seem imaginable that this commission is actually going to get going. One caveat to that. Uh, So this is going to this is going to pass in the House. I mean, I saw that the uh, with Republican support with with Republican support, the problem solvers call caucus, which includes, uh, I think, about 29 Republicans have endorsed it. There are going to be a lot of other Republicans who will- Maybe Liz Cheney. Who will, who will uh, <laughs> Liz Cheney yeah. for sure, who will, who will back this, um, some uh, in solidarity with uh, John Katko, the New York uh, congressman who was appointed, as you, as you said, uh, Mike, uh, by Kevin McCarthy himself uh, to negotiate uh, this uh, this with 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 the Democrats, so it'll pass with a lot of Republican support. If it is a truly large number of Republicans, uh, which will be interpreted as a as a kind of a revolt against Kevin McCarthy, then that could have some impact on what happens in the, in the Senate. It's interesting to look at the reasons that that McCarthy and uh, and McConnell have given uh, for opposing this commission. Um, M- McCarthy says that it is um, it's not balanced uh, because. All they're doing is investigating an, uh, an assault on the Congress on January 6th and uh, the American democratic uh, system. A little um, thing like where, that. Whereas um, they, they ought to be also investigating, you know, violence in democratic run cities. Gee, I wonder where he's getting that idea from. Um, I wonder if he's had conversations with uh, Donald Trump. So and McConnell, for his part, he's basically saying, look, we don't need this commission because we already have. Uh, you know, a criminal investigation going on and, and and congressional committees that can look into this. But this is different. You know, we all uh, were around when the 9-11 Commission was doing its business. We covered it, Mike. Um, and there is a really big difference between a, a bipartisan congressional commission that has subpoena power and these other kinds of investigations. For one thing, not everything is criminal. Um, you know, there, right. there are a lot of other issues uh, that the 9-11 Commission exposed that would not have been exposed by a, uh, a criminal investigation. And then when you talk about congressional hearings, we know how successful those are these days when they have no. Uh, they're you know, absurd. Kind of, they're yeah, totally the congressional absurd. hearings they're, are completely they're absurd, absurd at this point. They're just partisan. They, they turn into food but fights. let's remember, yeah. let's remember one reason McCarthy doesn't want this commission. Yeah, I know where because you're going with this. You're, one yeah. of those who would definitely be subpoenaed by a January 6th commission is McCarthy himself about his conversation with Trump that day. How he, as he related to others at the time, was pleading with Trump to do something to call off the protesters and Trump was completely dismissive of that. And one of the biggest questions that we you know we don't know the answer to fully is what was Donald Trump's state of mind when that was happening, which of course then will shed light on what he may have done uh, inside the White right. House on that day, which is continues to be a kind of a black yeah. hole and maybe the most. And, and then there are the persistent questions about whether 
other members of Congress may have uh, surreptitiously or overtly encouraged some of the activities that happened sure. on January 6th. Sure. So he's McCarthy is, is protecting maybe not just himself, but some of his other right. members. And needless to say, at a time that McCarthy wants to be focused on becoming Speaker of the House by Republicans retaking control of the House next year, he doesn't want to have to be facing questions about whether he committed perjury to a uh, January 6th commission when he gets questioned under oath uh, about his conversations with the president. So all of that is something we should definitely be keeping track of. But let's- I just want to, before we, I just want to say one other thing. There's like one of my, one of the most astonishing moments of the week, which is related to all of this. Uh, there is a Republican congressman uh, from Georgia named um, Andrew Clyde, who uh, recently referred to uh, what happened on January 6th, the, the storming of the Capitol, as just a bunch of tourists Going yeah. visiting the Capitol, um, which obviously was a shocking and astonishing thing to anybody for anybody to say who witnessed what happened. Uh, well, now it, em- uh, it it emerges that uh, there's video out there that shows that uh, um, he was actually like barricading the doors, uh, you know, trying to keep uh, the uh, the rioters uh, and the mob from getting in, like physically putting himself in their way. You know, maybe that showed some courage on his part. Uh, but now he turns around and says those people that he was, uh, you know, that he was trying to keep out of the Capitol were just a bunch of friendly tourists. So I just that thought is we- some <laughs> amazing selective amnesia. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, yes, we all should um, keep tourists from going too far when they come to the Capitol. Uh, anyway, look, lots to talk about. But let's let's start with Jana Winner and this really eye popping uh, reporting she's been doing on the covert postal inspection uh, service program. Uh, so let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us Jana Winter, a uh, Yahoo News contributor who has been on a tear exposing the U.S. Postal Service's Internet Covert Operations Program. This is the secret program inside the Postal Service in which they are conducting all sorts of interesting investigations below radar uh, that raise all sorts of privacy questions. Jana, welcome back. You've got some new reporting on this issue. Tell us about it. Thanks for having me back. And yeah, it's a lot bigger of a program with a lot more power and authority and resources than we knew or looks like anyone knew. I mean, Congress didn't even know that this existed at all. Uh, Now we know that they're using Clearview facial recognition um, to scrape social media pages and YouTube videos and all that stuff and compare it with arrest photos. And and who exactly is doing this, John? The U.S. Postal Service, the law enforcement arm of the post office and their cyber analytics division, under which is ICOP. But the resources are available to anyone at the post office, they kindly say in the materials that we've reviewed. So if you work at the inspection service, you can just do facial recognition all day, apparently. So it's just it's it's fate. We're going to definitely uh, dig into the facial uh, recognition piece of this, which is a really hot button issue, huge concern for civil libertarians. But it's broader than that. I mean, they're doing other things, creating 
uh, fake IDs and fake accounts, um, using all sorts of interesting software uh, for this surveillance uh, initiative. Tell us a little more about what you found out and what was in these documents that you've obtained. I feel like I want to just first say that the Postal Inspection Service does have a mission that is charged to protect their mail, mail delivery, and executives. So they should be doing some of this, but definitely not all of this. And what we've learned is that they have all sorts of uh, means to create fake social media profiles. They use a bunch of different softwares that is not cheap to get on a government uh, contract to maintain their anonymity and to take over social media accounts if necessary. And we don't know why they have this authority or what exactly they are up to, but... Well, do they have this authority? I mean, that, that's that's an outstanding question. What I is mean, it, they absolutely think they do. What's it rooted in? Do we that, that was a mystery the last time we spoke to you. That remains a mystery. I They say at the bottom of the bulletin that we published with the first story that focused on Parler and upcoming protests in March that they cited all sorts of different like, you know, codes at the bottom and the footnotes that said, we have the authority to do this, to collect and disseminate this information because of X. Um, X is nothing to do with targeting protesters and sending around personal details about people who do not appear to be making any kinds of threats. The only thing that stands out is that there's a reference to the ability of an attorney general to give additional powers to a postmaster general. And I have asked the post office, I have asked the Department of Justice one million times, I have asked everyone about this, and even Congress, during their briefings, the Dems and Republicans both asked the chief postal inspector, what authority are you citing to be doing this work? And they said, we'll have to get back to you, we're not sure. So, I I don't know. And what the Postal Service collects doesn't necessarily stay with the Postal Service, right? Right. That's one of the biggest concerns here. The Postal Inspection Service last year joined as an official partner of DHS's Homeland Security Information Sharing Network, which is where they put sensitive, um, like law enforcement sensitive, but not actually classified um, intelligence to share with, you know, across federal government and down to state and locals. So these bulletins that have people's faces and profiles posting about their intent to go to protests, which is a constitutionally protected, that's freedom of association and free speech, that these these bulletins, including the one we published initially, were sent to literally every federal law enforcement agency from NSA to DEA, and then down to all of the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, the Border Smuggling Task Forces called HIDA. There's They were sent to joint terrorism task forces in a few different locations and all the DHS fusion centers. So So is there a chance that DHS is doing stuff that other law enforcement agencies are barred from doing under statute? Well, it's not even clear that DHS can do this. And that's one of the big questions that DHS has not answered for me that I continue to ask is what are your exact authorities when it comes to collecting, sharing, disseminating social media information that is not considered a threat. And they can't apparently answer that question, DHS answer that question. But if they are, there's a real problem legally, if they are disseminating work throughout the country that they themselves cannot collect or put on their letterhead. So if this is being used as a potential runaround to do this kind of work and collect this kind of intelligence, It doesn't, to me, I think, it doesn't really matter if you cannot put this on official DHS letterhead, if DHS is literally the place where you're sending it out. But also, it's not just that they're distributing 
these ICOP bulletins in mass at the time that they're produced, they also get stored forever. John, just to remind our listeners, ICOP is this internet covert operations program within the Postal Service. And no, no longer so covert. Yes. And no Formerly longer, thanks to Jana, right. Yeah. Um, yes. But what I was going to say was that it's not just that DHS sends these bulletins out to everyone. It's now, now we know that they store them for future use by any law enforcement intelligence agency around the country from state, local, federal. So in a few months, if someone wants to see like this guy, some random person who posted, oh, I might be going to a protest and his face is on his profile. They didn't redact anything. They can go and any other agency can go and retrieve that. And that's a real problem. And I will note also that the Postal Service bulletin that we initially published, it did not have any redactions. Um, When DHS sends out open source information, meaning things collected from social media that anyone can see, not private stuff, they will, if it's a U.S. citizen, they will sort of black it out with a like a black redaction bar and say U.S. person one or U.S. company two. Um, but there was nothing like that on the Postal Service Bulletin. So it's sort of a problem if DHS is saying, you know, well, we would never distribute this. We have all these rules. But here's all this other stuff from these people who do have the authority or think they have the authority. So a couple of things, John. First of all, they did, the Postal Service did give you a quote in response to your inquiries in which they said, this review of publicly available open source information, including news reports and social media, is one piece of a comprehensive security and threat analysis, and the information obtained is the same information anyone could access as a private citizen. So let's just take that. (laughs) On its face, what's the law on this for federal agencies collecting open source information, storing it about American citizens? Um, And I'm still unclear. Well, that's being worked out. I mean, literally right now, I think the working group is over. But, you know, the White House domestic terrorism review has been completed. It was being workshopped in the interagency group for the last two weeks, and will come out in, in about two and a half weeks. But the, one of the biggest things that's supposed to be ongoing is figuring out the right calibration between you know, how this information from social media is collected and then how it's shared. And it is a super tricky, like fine line, but this is their, you know, this is a government's job. You should figure that out. But that's not, that's not based on existing statutes, is it? It's a, these, are, these would be policy guidelines. Both. I mean, I think that they're looking at changing a few things. They are. Um, certainly the structure for sending out that information, also how they sort of use trusted private sources outside the government. But I know that's a big issue that they're working on. I do want to say that what the post office said to me was ridiculous because I, or the Postal Inspection Service, which again is part of the post office, but to be more specific, the I asked them for comment about the use of Clearview uh, facial recognition, and they come back to me with, we're only doing things that the general public can do. And I don't know who has, what general public has access to Clearview, but I do not. So I don't know. I mean, they, we do know that they they are a very powerful law enforcement arm in itself. They they did arrest Steve Bannon on a yacht of the Chinese billionaire. I mean- Can you just, John, can you just explain uh, what Clearview AI does because I think for listeners who don't know the capabilities here and how it could potentially be abused, I think that's just important context. Uh, right. I mean, it seems like based on the materials that we've reviewed, at least, 
that they are using this artificial intelligence technology to compare 3 billion images, a database of 3 billion images that come from social media, that come from YouTube videos, that come from all over the internet. Which which Clearview has scraped. They have got, right. they have scraped the internet and they have gotten 3, 3 billion, billion something images, right. So potentially of you and me and I mean, I, I think we've all been tweeting about the post right. office. So I'm pretty sure like we're guaranteed to be in there. Right. Um, we should tell them hello. But I also happen to live literally right behind um, the postmaster general's house, which I don't think they realize. But um, so I just basically watch his apartment all day while working on stories. So <laughs> I, I do think that we have intersected with their collection efforts. Yes. They have this 3 billion plus images database, mostly from scraped uh, social media and the internet, but not just that. It's arrest photos. It's all sorts of other law enforcement stuff. So this is one of two programs that, at least that I'm aware of, that the Postal Service use for facial recognition. They use another one, too, that goes with a license plate reader. So basically, they have the ability to do kind of anything. And that is for an agency that cannot literally deliver their mail and says that they're going to go out of business if they do not have all this money, please give me emergency money, Congress. I think that there needs to be a much harder look at what they're spending their money on, what they are doing, why they're doing it. And the fact that the head of the inspection service could not tell Congress what authority under which this was being done um, is also. And, and the answer to your questions about this program is that this was. Uh, aimed at protecting the 600 and some odd thousand mail deliverers, well, in part, at least right. in part, right? But so what is the threat environment today for, uh, you know, mail carriers uh, that would justify this? Well, okay. So I had two things or three things on this. So the first one is that in there, you know, I go back to, they won't pick up their phone, USPIS, press office, pick up your phone one day um, or call me. Uh, but so I, I email them almost every day because obviously I'm working on all these stories and their response has sort of modified over time. Initially, they said, we're here to protect our employees and our customers. So, you know, you're like, thank you. Are you you're doing this all for me? Anyone with a postal address or a mailbox? So they have sort of watered down their description. There's no more customer reference in their response to me. Um, but I, I do think it's fair to say that you know, they told Congress, the chief postal inspector told, well, gave very different briefings to the Republicans and the Democrats, like ridiculously different briefings. But they told, he told um, the chief postal inspector, Barksdale, told the Democrats that because of the heightened threat environment and the insane, you know, like apparently like a whole lot of death threats against the postmaster general over the summer, that's when they pivoted to start looking at protests. So this is the intersection of protests outside the postmaster general's house that I had been waiting for because I live here. So I know that there were two protests. Um, there were Black Lives Matter protests that were coming up from the National Mall that he lives on sort of the corner of a very major artery in D.C. So if you're going north to Maryland, you will pass his house. I don't know if that was the best place to put him if you're so concerned about protest threats. But there's a lot of activity. There was one protest specifically about the Postmaster General, and it involved 14 people and a go-go band and a DJ. So I don't know. I'm sure that he is getting threats, but that is sort of what they're citing as the reason for, or at least to the Democrats, as the reason for the need to be looking at uh, all these protests just in case there are threats coming up from uh, against the Postmaster General. 
And I will also note, they told the Republicans, this is all because of Black Lives Matter. It was prompted by the protests that erupted and showing this video of a mail truck engulfed in flames, protest footage in Minneapolis to the Republicans, which they did not at all do to the, the Dems. But they said, and they've told me also that we do this because we're, you know, the question is, well, why can't FBI do this? Why can't DHS do this? Why can't local police look out for, you know, your postal people or whatever? And they've said to me, well, we're the only agency, and they've told Congress that they're the only ones who can send real-time text messages to their mail carriers to say, you know, get out of the way, danger, protests. So because I just happened to live by DeJoy, the Postmaster General, I have asked all of our mail carriers, we're all the same, if they have ever received any text messages, and no one has. And I don't, that's sort of the, the one thing that they have been standing on and saying that the protests and the death threats were coming up to the Postmaster General's house. I really don't think they know I live right here, but I'm, I'm so sorry. But oh, wait a second, Jenna, this program didn't begin last summer with the threats on postal carriers, correct? Well, so what we know is that it began in, there had been a dark web investigative program. And this is where they the problem is because they do have a a real law enforcement presence, and that's that is. And they play they, a big role in making child pornography cases, right. for instance, right? The this is service. true. So we're not yeah. trying to take away from that, but they took a pivot to target First Amendment protected activity in um, late March or June of last year, and that is sort of what's led to the exposure of all these things. Okay, so John, Johnny, you mentioned two rival briefings with Congress, which kind of takes us into the how is the government reacting to this? Like, you know, how how is Congress reacting? And there seems to be a pretty so far disparate response, depending on which party you're in. So tell us about what the Republicans are doing versus what the Democrats are doing. Okay, so where do I even begin? Mm -hmm. um, I think initially, we should say that the bulletin that we published with the first story talks about, you know, there's pictures of parlor discussion, things that are right-leaning and was targeting right-leaning or far-right protests that were scheduled. So the Republicans came out almost immediately, you know, here's a letter from 30 plus people, we are demanding briefings. They got a briefing, they were shown uh, video footage of a mail truck engulfed in flames and told that they were targeting protesters because of the Black Lives Matter protests. And this was all prompted the turn to target protesters um, looking for threats, which they didn't find. Um, all happened right after the murder of George Floyd. I have been trying to get the Democrats to talk to me for literally weeks. And I have had to go around to like other committees on the Senate side to say, can you please remind them? Like, I don't have any beef with them. I don't understand why they can't pick up the phone. This is something literally your office does every day historically. Super interested, privacy, social media, surveillances are all the things, especially if it's targeting Black lives. I mean, how are you silent on this? So apparently they were just silent, you know, publicly. They have been, they got a briefing even before the Republicans did, it turns out. They've had two briefings by now. And some of the committee, the committee staffer, on the Dem side, told me that uh, they are still concerned, but they're still asking for additional information. So they're obviously, I mean, they finally said out loud that they, they are concerned about the First Amendment implications and targeting things like protests. 
but you would think that it wouldn't be radio silent. I think this also has to do with, this is kind of uncharted territory, right? So we're looking at the commission coming up to investigate the January 6th attack, which prompted all this discussion and hearings earlier on that sort of put FBI and DHS in the hot seat that said, you know, why didn't you guys see this coming when it was all over social media? So do you think, do you think, Jana, that, um, that what's, what's awkward for the Democrats here is they want to keep the focus on, you know, the Trump supporters who attacked the Capitol and they don't want to turn it into a story about civil liberties violations against some of those same people who were there? Right. Um, I mean, I think, yes. I think, I mean, part of what's been so annoying to me is just not understanding why they were so quiet. And I was wondering if this was connected to the White House review because they're looking at the same thing. But I talked to someone um, who is not related in any way directly to any of this, but who said, you know, this is something that, a lot of the, you know, organizations outside the government who you'd think would be coming out with an official statement or sometimes they file lawsuits in response to stories like this. They've also been silent. I think it kind of caught everyone by the, by surprise. I mean, the, the House Oversight Committee that's in charge of the post office didn't know that this entire program existed in the first place. And the calibration of social media surveillance collection um, dissemination, all these efforts are something that people have had a hard time sort of figuring out, especially difficult for the Dems because it's an issue that's important to them. But also you don't want to, I think they don't want to publicly go after the organization that might have potentially all the evidence against the people who did storm the Capitol. Um, Jana, you just said something that I hope is the major takeaway uh, people get from this interview. And that is that the chairman of the House subcommittee that oversees the Postal Service knew nothing about this program at all, didn't even know it existed until you in the news media for Yahoo News exposed it. Here is a major civil liberties issue that many major civil liberties issues raised by this program. And the people in charge of oversight in Congress didn't even know about it until the press exposed it. Yep, that's about right. It's not great. I mean, <laughs> Victoria, as a former Senate staffer on the Judiciary Committee charged with oversight of our law enforcement activities, what do you make of that? What I make of it is that uh, Congress is just massively understaffed. I mean, we've got a, we've got a law enforcement agencies, you know, in between the FBI and the Postal Service and the Secret Service that, in, that literally employ tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people. And maybe there are like 10 or 15 staffers grand total in Congress who cover this issue. And so I'm not, I'm not surprised that they didn't know it was, it was happening. It was kind of covert after all. Um, no, it shouldn't be covert from all, you know, there has to be oversight of some things and yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it, but it's, it's shocking how easy it is for agencies to hide things from Congress. It's really easy for, for agencies to hide things from Congress. And it is that the amount of resources that Congress um, expends on this sort of oversight is, is shockingly small. Well, I look, it, it, this will, would not, uh, be the first time uh, that the press um, has exposed, 
you know, a, a potential uh, civil liberties scandal without Congress knowing about it. And it's it's uh, it's what should happen. I mean, you know, uh, we we should uh, be you know doing this. And the, the issue at this point is they shouldn't be so debilitated by their lack of knowledge that they can't respond because they are afraid to do something. The point is, yeah, at this point, now that it's out there, now that all of these questions have been raised, why aren't they doing more? Uh, that, that to me is what, um, is kind of inexcusable. Um, and, you know, the Republicans are taking this issue up and they may have an, a political agenda here. I noticed by the way, that, uh, I think you reported in your story that, uh, Matt Gates, who is currently under investigation, yes, he happened to be the one to introduce, yeah. uh, did introduce legislation to defund the ICOPS program. And that's probably another disincentive for the Democrats to get involved. You know, I asked the Democrats, I said, listen, like, you know, it's getting ridiculous. Do you care more that Ted Cruz at that, this point, you know, had tweeted something than about your constituents and the issues that have been important to you since like the founding of this party? Like, what are you doing? And that's finally when I got them on the phone and on background. Um, and they say that they just want to make sure that they have enough information, that they have all the information. I think that they don't want to step on the toes of the actual investigation into the protest. If they come out and say they are in a tricky spot, they come out and say, you know, we shouldn't be looking at protests for for violence. Then does that what does that do to evidence, you know, either maybe by the post office or the post office is on a bunch of sort of joint task forces? Does this does this mess that up? Does this what is the what does the Biden administration say about this? I mean, there is an inspector general uh, who, uh, you know, is responsible for the for the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, Does this rise to the level of looking at this program to make sure there aren't abuses going on? That's a good point. Uh, I, I do know that they're uh, I'm trying to figure out how I can say this uh, within the confines of my agreements with people. There are people at the White House who I assumed would know about this program, just the existence of this program, because this is what they should know. And they did, they just said they did not. And I feel like I'm not saying that would be excusable in a different point in time. But this is the moment where we are going to be redoing i mean we're like the biden administration is going to be launching all of these things that are going to create like kind of an overhaul of domestic counterterrorism policy and one of the huge aspects of this in the aftermath of the january 6th attack on the capitol is how are we looking for threats on social media and what are the you know what are the first amendment implications of that and the white house also knows that it has been so aggressively supporting the privacy and civil liberties groups because they know if they don't have people like ACLU on board, that they're going to be hit with all these civil liberties challenges and that any policy that's rolled out by Biden could get overturned by the Supreme Court right before the next election cycle. So there's like all these concerns that are going on. But I think so no one wants to sort of say anything. But I think one, people should have known about this if you're literally looking at, you know, developing policies in response, you know, to January 6th that relate to this exact activity. Two, like, okay, post office, inspection service, ICOP, uh, what did what did you find in the run-up to January 6th? Did you warn anyone about what you found? Did you see any threats? Uh, these are also other questions. The postal inspector told Congress that this wasn't, it was the targeting of protests for by this group, ICOP, um, the formerly covert unit, that it wasn't that it was incident specific, but he would not say which incidents. So did the postmaster general say only target Black Lives Matter protests? Did 
was the huge protest at the Capitol even looked at? We don't, these are questions we don't know. And I think there's some stuff that will, I hope, come out now, but you also wonder what the hell every other agency is doing that we don't know about. So I don't know. Well, um, Jana, you have uh, once again vindicated the job we all do in trying to keep track of that which uh, government agencies try to conceal from the American public. So congrats again and keep at it. We want to keep exploring this story and um, uh, see where it ends up. Thanks. Yeah, there are clearly more questions than answers at this point. And so (laughs) So we are glad that you are on the case for Yahoo News. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Okay, we've now got with us Brad Stone, the senior executive editor for global technology at Bloomberg News and the author of the new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Brad, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Mike. And and our former Newsweek I colleague. I was just going to say, Brad, you had a leg up on getting on this show as a former colleague of ours from Newsweek. We, uh, we specialize every in week. promoting <laughs> the books, podcasts, articles of our former Newsweek colleagues. Yeah. Meacham was the last one a couple of like last week. He doesn't really need uh, our promotion. Promotion. No. Yeah. No. Have you guys noticed how we all have Meacham blurbs on our books now? <laughs> like a rite of passage? I, I, I did not. <laughs> yeah. And you should read something into that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Anyway, so lots to talk about uh, in your excellent new book about Bezos and Amazon. I want to start off because we've been talking a lot of late about uh, privacy and surveillance, about a secret covert uh, program by the Postal Service to monitor people's uh, social media So the part about Amazon that's so fascinating in regards to this is Alexa, right? Something that a product you write about, how it really came out of Bezos' own head. He inspired this. He wanted to have some talking artificial intelligence unit in everybody's kitchen and bedroom. After a lot of stumbles, it took off big time, but it raises some really serious, even creepy privacy issues about what Amazon is collecting about all of us and what we're saying in the privacy of our own homes. So address that uh, uh, just to start off. I mean, as Amazon basically found a way to scoop up um, information about all of us that it can use for its own profitability. Right. Well, Maybe I am less conspiratorial here, um, and I have Alexas in, in my own home. I, I do not believe that Alexa is the spear uh, in terms of a, an you know intrusive incursion into our lives. There are other things that Amazon does that are creepy. It has the ring doorbells that are surveilling you know people's front stoops. It is installing cameras and and monitoring algorithms in the automobiles of its contract. A driving workforce to try to monitor their performance. Um, it has the the uh, image recognition systems that are part of AWS that has had to kind of pull from police authorities because of of conflict and controversy there. But you know, Alexas are you know they're they're they've been designed very deliberately 
uh, to do a couple of things, you know, one to wake up and transmit to the cloud only when their, their name is called, you know, Alexa, but you can change it um, to show what it's recording and to offer that in the app to, to customers. Um, you know, there are, there are some mistakes that Amazon's made. It didn't telegraph widely enough that there's going to be, there's a kind of workforce there that's monitoring some queries, uh, that, that Alexa doesn't answer well to try to improve its performance. And when we at Bloomberg reported that it was a little bit of a controversy, but Brad, can I, let me just break in for a moment, because sure. I remember when this really hit home for me is I get a call on my, uh, cell phone and it says it's from Alexa. Who I had never uh, put down as a contact. It turns out my son was in the kitchen and said, call dad. And, you know, Alexa did. And right. um, I don't know. It just got, it did creep me out. But uh, yes, there are, it does occasionally, it'll pipe up when you don't summon it. it there have been a couple of examples where it's gone, it's gone haywire and, you know, transmitted a, a personal conversation to a contact. But like those are, errors and and like they're out to build a business with Alexa and I do feel like and maybe here in this respect I'll sound like I'm parroting the company line if it really was an eavesdropping device they wouldn't be really building you know would wouldn't be capable of building a, a large business there so they have to be very careful and I think it's one of the reasons you know I've got the first sketch that Jeff wrote of this thing in 2011 and he's like defining the privacy problems but let's also be frank, like, you know, here's my smartphone, you know, I'm carrying around a microphone, it's with me everywhere I go. You know, there are plenty of avenues for the tech companies to kind of reach into our lives if, if they want to. Basically, we've lost the privacy battle is what you're all right, saying. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. I, look, I'm not as conspiratorial as Isakoff is either, but I do it's think- it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to be that conspiratorial. I think we should stick with Alexa because Brad, I think it's such a great example of Bezos' uh, strengths, um, how he operates. Um, um, there, we we can get into the weaknesses too, and talk about the Fire Phone. Um, I'm so interested in that episode. But tell us tell us the story of Bezos and um, and Alexa, because people were very skeptical. He was relentless uh, in pushing it, uh, and then all of the things that uh, that they did to sort of perfect it, to gather the data, to make the thing I was fascinated about is you know taking all those apartments in Boston, I think, and hiring all those volunteers who would who would talk to what was going to be Alexa, you know, in all these different situations. I mean, that was fascinating. So just tell us how how the Alexa story is emblematic of who Jeff Bezos is and how he how he has run that company right I mean I talked about he he had the idea in in early 2011 he he develops this team he he invests in it he puts one of his his uh shadows or chief of staffs behind it but the the pivotal moment uh Dan is the one that you describe which is you know, basically the paradox, the catch-22 with these devices is you need a lot of data to make them smart, um, but they can't get a lot of data until they launch. Uh, and so Amazon was trying to collect data in, in employee homes, but there, there wasn't enough of it. It was too uniform. And so they they Bezos basically walks out of meetings because his executives aren't thinking big enough. So there, there's the precipitating event. He's like, you guys aren't serious. We're never going to get there with just this beta test in worker homes. And so they bring it out into the world disguised. Um, they rent all these homes. They bring contractors, uh, temp workers through it. They, these people have no idea what they're doing. They're reciting scripts. Um, they're they're making open-ended queries. And here you have Alexas in all these homes 
shrouded in acoustic cloth uh, that's, that are just gathering data. And this is how basically spending tens of millions of dollars to do this program over the course of, uh, I, I believe it's uh, 2013, early 2014, they make Alexa smart enough. Uh, and so there is Bezos's mindset in a nutshell, right? The inventiveness to come up with the concept, the sort of boldness to invest in it, and then sort of thinking out of the box and making his employees' lives miserable enough that they go and like figure out how to solve this problem. And there are plenty of reasons to be critical of Amazon and Bezos. So we can get into some of those, but I do feel like you know th this invention story, which is where I start the book, is you know is is sort of Amazon at it, at its best. I mean, we could sort of argue that the whole Alexa thing is maybe hit a little bit of a standstill in terms of their vision for it, but you know, kind of conceiving it out of nothing and launching it within a couple of years was a at least uh, you know from the Silicon Valley view kind of a remarkable achievement. So I want to step back for a second, if we can, real quickly, and ask the question: What is Amazon, because, uh, you know, from from our perspective, from a consumer perspective, it might be books, you know, kind of online marketplace and an Alexa. But your book makes it clear that it is a sprawling, pervasive organization that is a lot more than we think it is. Uh, so what is Amazon? Uh, Victoria, it's a really good question, and it's one that I wish I had a sort of pithy and mellifluous answer to, um, uh, but I'm going to try. Um, it, it's a collection of disparate businesses that are, are unified in some very subtle and obscure ways that actually Amazon goes to great lengths to, to, to sort of obscure, that are joined by like this, this very idiosyncratic culture, um, you know, a, an orientation to always give the customer whatever they want regardless of, you know, the impact to other constituencies and, you know, all of it orbiting around, you know, one of the most relentless, inventive and ruthless, you know, characters to come under the business environment in, in the in the modern day. Well, I, as I was reading the book, there was there was one thing I was trying to figure out what's the next Alexa. Bezos is always thinking 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And I focused on go. Um, yeah. And I guess my big question is, did the pan the pandemic? First of all, maybe you you might want to explain to people what Go is because it's not something that's you know kind of widely available. But is that the future of Amazon? Well, it's it's interesting because you know retail right now is only ten percent online, so there's a ninety percent opportunity waiting for Amazon, and and the Go store, which is going to seem sort of trivial, are these Seven Eleven type outlets with cameras on the ceiling and, and weights in the shelves that will automatically charge you when you select something uh, off the shelf. You don't have to wait in line at the cashier. And that was almost like a proof of concept. And there's maybe a couple dozen of them. But what Amazon's doing now is rubber stamping out these very large, you know, whole food size supermarkets. They're called Amazon Fresh Grocery Stores. Um, they are not Whole Foods markets. They have none of the organic orthodoxy of, of Whole Foods. Um, they'll sell you your, your Coke and your um, Honey Nut Cheerios. And it's either with the ghost store technology or these uh, shopping carts where the cart itself will scan the item once it, once it enters, once you put it in. So you know, eliminating the cashier might not seem that dramatic. Actually, to me, I don't personally mind waiting a couple of minutes and checking my email, but they are making a big bet with this new technology on entering the physical grocery store space. And when you look at Walmart and its strength from groceries and Target um, and, and, the, and the, the giant 
uh, retail companies like like uh, Kroger, you know, their advantage is in the consumable space and the frequency of that shopping experience. And so Amazon entering into groceries with an inventive solution, I think, is going to be very significant. Yeah, he's got this remarkable record of success, uh, but sort of woven into it are some kind of like big failures. And one of them was the uh, Fire Phone, um, which I think most Americans either never heard of or certainly don't remember. So just quickly tell us, what does it tell us about um, Bezos um, that he screwed that one up, how he screwed it up, and what did he learn from it? And then we can get to sex. Right. <laughs> well, you know, they, they'll they'll talk about, you know, the fire phone and other related failures as a kind of badge of honor. But but I do think it's instructive and, and maybe of something that's sort of worrisome, you know, which is that Bezos, as he was conceptualizing Alexa, he had this similar idea for a phone with a 3D screen, um, you know, that would that would be a premium phone and kind of pop images out in three dimensions and you could scan in any product and it would tell you a price. And here he is, a multi-billionaire even at the time, um, and you know, not really in touch with the customer and, and what they want out of a piece of technology. You know, wasn't then, probably certainly isn't now, as he you know is orbiting at the very high altitude of a of the wealthiest person in the world, and the product kind of famously flops and goes nowhere. So I, I do, th- and I have a couple of stories in the book. The other really really fun one is when he authorizes the creation of a single cow burger inside Amazon yes. because <laughs> he reads a story in the Post about how uh, hamburgers are made from a lot of cows, and you know, and so he does have ideas. I think because of his rarefied position now in the world that maybe the risk is they're not really in touch with what people want. And I think the Fire Phone is maybe the first example of perhaps Bezos's feet leaving the ground a little bit. And that could be a worry for Amazon in the future. All right. Can I get to my question now? Uh, <laughs> the, uh, all right. Everybody this week is talking about uh, Bill Gates and his uh, divorce. Um, but uh, Bezos beat him to it by a couple of years. But what's really fascinating is the way he was able to turn what for anybody else would have been a huge embarrassment, i.e. the National Enquirer had copies from his cell phone of all sorts of salacious photos with his then-girlfriend, uh, soon-to-be second wife, and he was able to turn that into a PR plus, in part by throwing out uh, the idea that it was really the Saudis who had hacked his phone. It was MBS getting revenge on him, which I gather you concluded just is not the case. So tell us the story about how Bezos was was able to turn this into a uh, a positive for him. Right. No, it's a it's a remarkable story. Um, you know, he's he's facing down the barrel in early 2019. Uh, you know, the National Enquirer, which has the goods, a, a real public embarrassment. And look, I mean, I don't know that they were he was disingenuous about feeling like there were kind of political motives. You know, Michael Sanchez, the brother of Lauren Sanchez, who provided the information to the Enquirer, he was kind of a notorious Trump supporter or at least played one on Twitter. At the same time, you have these bot armies operating on behalf of MBS and the Saudis who are vilifying Bezos, um, you know, in, in large part because of the post coverage of the Khashoggi murder. And, you know, they view the landscape. And at the very least, it's it's kind of convenient to, for him to wrap himself up in the mantle of The Washington Post 
say how proud he is of the paper, say that it's a complexifier for him, um, that there are people who would view him as a political enemy. And, you know, I I, I, I sort of see why they might have thought that in, at the time, uh, considering all the factors. But when you when you look at it and the Southern District of New York and the FBI did examine it because Bezos was accusing the, the inquirer of extorting him. And, you know, there there really just wasn't much to that. You know, this was, I concluded, a, a, a very, you know, strange family dynamic between the siblings and a brother who you might on some, you know, other planet have felt like he was doing the right thing, but took a huge payout for the from the Inquirer and, and handed them, uh, you know, a trove of their text messages at the same time as he was deceiving them. And here was really the extraordinary piece. He was deceiving them into thinking that he had given them an explicit photograph of Bezos when in fact he had lifted the photograph from a, a gay escort website. And the Inquirer thought they had the goods. And in this respect, they didn't. Wait a second. The photo from the gay escort website was was not of Bezos. No, no right? it was a it was of testicles or now, something. Mike, that right? would have been a, just, a more interesting story. Yeah. yeah OK. Uh, but wait, so, so it was just a stock photo that he that he uh, that he downloaded and showed them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not a stock photo, but a photo of someone else. Yeah. <laughs> OK. So but. Are you convinced that that this was just a smokescreen to distract uh, from the the you know embarrassing details of of, of his affair? I mean, uh, what makes you confident that that's what he was doing? Well, I mean, I, I, as I think I, I said, I don't know that it was a disingenuous smokescreen. That he had some, and and Gavin De Becker, his his representative, they had some reasons um, to feel like this could be politically motivated. You know, Michael Sanchez. You know, had contacts in Trump world. You know, the the Trump administration had obviously you know made an enemy of Bezos and, and the Post and Amazon. MBS's bot army was tweeting against him. Um, oh, and by the way, it's very con- still conceivable that MBS and his minions did hack the phone of Bezos and other business and political leaders. You know, I've never really seen. Con- well, the cybersecurity community is not uniform about that there there's difference of opinion and you can't really pinpoint. What, what's the evidence that well there did? was all this data flowing out of his phone right i mean right um there was a, a there was an agency that conducted the forensics on the phone the spyware itself was is un- indiscoverable um but there was the the evidence they pointed to was the the um the output of uh of data and i would just point out that there might be other explanations for that including a, a hot and heavy exchange of photographs and and, and video <laughs> with uh his girlfriend at the time i i don't know all i know is when you talk to folks in the cybersecurity community they look at that analysis that a group called fti consulting did and they're not convinced but that's to say I don't think it was disingenuous. I do think it was convenient and it was masterful that they were able, that Bezos was able to use the post and his, you know, and, and the, and the, obviously the, the frictions that he had with uh, the post had with the government of Saudi Arabia and with the Trump administration and use that to at least cloud, to create a fog of ambiguity over this, the basic truth, which is he had an affair and he got busted and that, you know, on some level is really uh, insidious. And on some level is you just have to kind of doff your cap that he managed to survive that and really thrive after it. And, you know, and it, in this political environment where that kind of conduct is, you know, bringing down other business and, and political leaders that Bezos skated through it uh, so effortlessly is, is kind of uh, kind of extraordinary. 
Well, what's also extraordinary is the way Amazon has just thrived under COVID. I mean, you point out what that its revenue soared 37% last year, up to $380 billion. Uh, Bezos uh, has only gotten wealthier. What's his net worth now? $160 billion, I think you, um, uh, you write. It's, I mean, two, it's, it's, I think, $200 billion now. $200 billion. Okay. I mean, it's so staggering. And uh, it just like, how do how should we process that that this one guy can control this company that is basically in all of our lives and getting richer than anybody could possibly ever imagine i mean i think the alarm bell should be going off you know the the pandemic sort of perversely uh you know gave it- a company that already had all the advantages, even even more of them. Its its growth is unimpeded. There are really no significant competitors, and this kind of corporate power and wealth aggregation, I think, opens up a lot of nasty frictions in our society. You know, we saw it with Amazon's union fight in Alabama. Um, you know, the the protests outside of his homes in Washington and L.A. has kind of gotten nasty. You see, you have activists rolling out guillotines, and um, you know, at the same time, you have like the Biden administration and a, and a consensus that something needs to be done, but you don't get the sense that there's really, you know, any um, any idea of how to slow this company down. Um, it, it's it's really complicated. They don't have an out and out monopoly in any of the markets they operate. Maybe you can make an argument for books. A lot of the hearings um, around Amazon, the other tech companies, kind of easily devolve into political circuses, right, with divergent agendas. So. Yeah, I think I think Amazon's gathering strength and the fact that the m- momentum feels so unimpeded should should create some 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 worrying signs. So, do you have a bottom line after writing these two books uh, on Bezos? I mean, net effect uh, on on the world. I mean, on the one hand, killing retail stores, employing you know hundreds of thousands of people in these soulless fulfillment um, centers, this callous culture for workers that he's created, um, accelerating climate change, you know, what, you know, there obviously is another, uh, another side to this, which is he's employing, you know, a million people or whatever, uh, you know, at pretty good wages, you know, all the convenience, you know, all the invention. So, so bottom line, I mean, Amazon, as it stands right now, before it's broken up by uh, the antitrust regulators. Yeah. Is it a good thing or not? Right. I, I think I, um, you know, I probably personally net out on the on the positive side of the equation. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Prime member. I'm an Alexa owner. I, I watch the videos and TV shows. I sort of feel like it might be hypocritical of me to say this is an <laughs> evil force in our society. Um, but you know, there, look, I mean, I think that calling the company to account and highlighting the, the areas in which it fails is really useful. I mean, they announced their climate goals and started this thing called the Climate Pledge only after the media, you know, called them to account for not releasing their climate impact report like other companies had done. Um, in his last investor letter, Bezos said he's going to commit himself to improving the company's relationship with its employees in the fulfillment centers. And that is because the drumbeat of eight years of, of scrutiny and, and and challenging coverage that has illuminated 
um, you know, the culture and, and the the everyday life of, the, of this now million person plus workforce. And so, yeah, while I think the ledger uh, tilts towards positive, you know, there's a lot of reasons still why this company needs to be kind of scrutinized and held accountable and probably studied pretty pretty closely by uh, regulators and lawmakers. Well, your uh, your book will be the roadmap for them to do that. Very quickly, by the way, did uh, Bezos talk? He did not talk to you for this book, right? No, he did not. There, there's still a little bit of lingering, uh, I would say, maybe bad blood from the from the first book, which they didn't like. But you only got one star on uh, Amazon. From, that's right. From, from, <laughs> from Mackenzie. <laughs> from um, Mackenzie Bezos or Mackenzie Scott, I guess. You right. Yeah. But they did, you know, they, they worked with me and I interviewed a, a dozen plus senior executives and Bezos allowed me to talk to friends and, um, you know, and, and they went, we went through a pretty careful fact checking process. So, you know, and he's not really doing any of the kind of reflective, you know, open, open field. Does interviews. he do any interviews at all? What has he done in the past few years? It's been few and far between. And so I never expected, well, that's not true. I did have, I did have, you know, fantasies that, that I would wear him down and he would talk to me. Um, but, you know, he's so careful and disciplined when he does do that stuff that I, I don't think the book suffers at all. Hundreds of, of folks in his orbit, you know, speaking to the decisions that were made, why they were made and, and when. And, um, you know, hopefully this gets to a little bit of his his mind frame. And our old friend, uh, Jay Carney, of course, you know, for, uh, is is an open book. I'm sure he just told you. <laughs> He's in there quite everything. a bit. I, I've got great emails between him and Bezos trying to deal with uh, Donald Trump. So, you know, check it out. <laughs> that was okay. great. That was very good stuff. Yeah. yeah. All right. The book is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Brad Stone, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Okay.